Hello and welcome to the Happy Bear Podcast. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. I'm Steve. And I'm Dave. And Happy Bear Podcast is all about health, well-being, happiness and ultimately having a better life. Uh, this week we are joined by Dr. David Hamilton. This is an incredible conversation. He wrote a book called, this is an 11th book called Why Woo Woo Works. And what we do is we unpack through a scientific lens why simple things such as kindness can reduce your risk of stress or not even your risk, reduce your feelings of stress. He talks about the placebo effect. He's a doctor of organic chemistry that took a turn and yeah, evolved into the more softer sides of science and has really spent his career exploring these and a best-selling author of 11 books. Um, really incredible conversation where we break down some of the simple basic things that we can do to lead a more fulfilled life. It was really heartfelt. It, it's so it's many real things. examples and just what a beautiful human. It was yeah. a glorious conversation. If you can stick towards the end where it gets really honest and beautiful. And ah, David yeah. Hamilton, you are wonderful. Yeah, really. So without further ado, we give you the wonderful Dr. David Hamilton. Uh, we've always been telling our kids to drink more water, yet recently they came back and showed us how to drink more water. Ooh. Yeah, my daughter came back with an air-up water bottle about six months ago, and I was like, oh, what's so fancy about this water bottle? And she showed me, like, it's literally got water in the bottle. It's got flavor, scent-based flavor pods in the top. You activate them, and it makes the water, like, it somehow uses scent-based technology that when you drink the water, plain water, it smells of one of the flavours. So in this case, I've got a pineapple pod. I activate it and I drink pure water. Well, I'll tell you how it works. Yeah. It uses scent-based technology so that the, the flavour comes in through your mouth and goes up your retronasal. Your cavity so is not really clever. So it goes in the back of your mouth and up to your nose where 70 to 90% of your taste or flavour um, is experienced. Yeah, so so what's amazing about it is they've innovated a water bottle to make it easier for you to drink more water that's fun and playful. There's 25 different flavours. My favourite is cherry cola with uh, fizzy water. It actually tastes like cherry cola. And I think the benefits are ultimately that you're reducing single-use pla use plastic and also you don't have to add any sugars to get water that tastes incredible. Yeah, my mother-in-law loves the cherry one. I bought her a bottle too because she wasn't drinking enough water too and she does lots of lawn bowls. Um, so yeah, she likes watermelon cherry. So we've partnered with them. You get a 10% discount with the code HAPPY10 or you've got an affiliate link in our show notes. Please click that if you want to purchase them. Um, and they're class. I'd really, really recommend them. One thing which I'd love to start our talk with is like you're, a, you're obviously a scientist. You're a chemical, organic chemist, you know, and a scientist. So rational science, science. And like, you know, we, we, we went to school and there was the career guidance teacher. And if you became a scientist, like, you know, you're a scientist and that's how it works. But somehow you and I'd love to hear the story of how you how your career went from working for AstraZeneca, where you're 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 like you're on the science. And then I mean, suddenly now you're in uh, uh, how I would call it modern spirituality, where it's yeah. practical spirituality. Like it's really you're a kindness scientist like that's which I think is an incredible way to describe yourself. And I'd love if you could just share that that career path, because anyone listening might go, you know, you might think that you need to be a lawyer or a doctor or whatever. And then somehow you made this route into something and you can see you love it. Like you can see in your eyes, you're lit up and mm. you're so the alive. kindness in you. Oh, thanks. That's very kind of you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, I think I, I could probably chart the, the seeds of the shift in my career down to my mum having postnatal depression. So I, I've got three sisters and my youngest sister was born in 1976. And my mum developed postnatal or postpartum depression. And it was at a time when I, it wasn't really well understood. I mean, certainly not compared to how it is today. And I, and I don't think my mum 
got the right treatment that she needed. In fact, one, one psychiatrist actually said to my mum, you just have to give yourself a shake. And I sometimes think, you asking a woman with postnatal depression to give herself a shake, I mean, that's like asking a, someone with a broken knee to just run it off, you know? And, and, and so my mum struggled then with the aftermath of postnatal depression, which became clinical depression and chronic anxiety. And I, I remember I started school, high school. I was 11 years old. And I just had that, I just, I, I knew my mum was unwell from time to time. I mean, she had it really well, but my mum had been hospitalised for a couple of, for a week or so at one point. And I remember I went to a library for the first time in my life and it was a, the, the English teacher took us to the school library. I'd only just started high school. And I know this sound, this will sound really corny, right? But a book fell off the shelf and it, maybe I bumped in my bag. I don't know. But it was called The Magic Power of Your Mind by a gentleman called Walter Germain. And I thought, I bet that could help my mum. And I just put it in my bag. Now, I didn't know that you're supposed to join the library. You know, <laughs> I love it. You know, I get a wee yellow ticket, you know, stamped. But you, my mum still has the book, by the way. <laughs> I forgot to, forgot to give it back. And uh, But, you know, it didn't cure her of depression, but what it did give her was tools and strategies, little practices that helped her to kind of navigate a course through some of the difficult times, you know, things like positive affirmations and and meditation. Uh, and, you know, I remember my mum when I was growing up saying, I can do it. It's the thought that counts, mind over matter. And she'd punch her, you know, shake her fist, almost to give her the energy as she was repeating these affirmations. It really helped her. And so because my mum found these things helpful, we and my mum and I ended up having all these discussions during my teenage years about the power of the mind. And it led us into considering your know, spirituality and the nature of reality and, and alternative therapies and meditation, the visualization, all these kind of things that, that weren't really considered proper signs. And so I went down the mainstream uh, academic route. You know, I did my degree, then a PhD in organic chemistry, which is Lego building for adults with atoms, <laughs> instead, of, with atoms instead of plastic bricks. And, and I ended up working at an R&D, cardiovascular and, and cancer. But I remember seeing the results of, of trials of drugs that I'd been working on and becoming so fascinated by the placebo effect. And I remember talking to my colleagues and I think that's amazing. And, and they weren't really interested because most of them are more interested in how well a medicine had been working. But for me, given my background of those conversations with my mum, what really drove what was more interesting to me was the power of the mind you know or the power of belief or expectation or something that was driving a change in the in, a, in the body when a person took a placebo so i started researching in my spare time the placebo effect and, and learning that belief itself actually fills around with your brain chemistry and that was like when i i remember telling that to colleagues and they thought i'd lost the plot <laughs> you know yeah, they, I could well imagine. they were like there's no way that belief or something in your mind could be changing your brain, you know, and it was just dismissed as as jokingly dismissed. But I, I thought this was absolutely amazing. And that was the beginning of my exit from a formal R&D job because I realised, and I think it's because I spent so much time talking to my mum about this kind of stuff growing up, that I, my, my really, my thirst and my passion was in that sort of field. So I just gradually just drifted away until one day I just decided 
you know, I'm going to go write books and educate people and explore things like, like kindness, mind-body connection, all these kind of stuff, and, and build a science framework in it, into it so that it can become accessible to people. It's a very brave thing because, like, you know, I'm sure so many people listening will go, I'm really, there's loads of stuff I'm really interested in, but to actually leave a career which likely pays well, you know, and it, it's got a clear career path to follow your passion is a really challenging thing to do. So, but obviously, as you said, the seed was, you know, it was almost like destiny that the book, you know, landed on the floor age 11. And it turns out, it, you know, you wrote a book on willpower and versus destiny and all sorts of things yeah, yeah. as well. So, so it's, you know, it seems like it's almost written in the stars to a sense. Yeah, I, I sometimes wonder. I, I sometimes think along those lines. You know, I, I think some maybe sometimes there's there's bigger drivers. You know, maybe bigger bits of guidance and encouragement that you know it's kind of pointers in, in our lives. You know, you know. But I, I certainly feel that way about you know how I moved in the direction that I've gone. I, I certainly followed a sense of purpose. If that makes sense. Yeah, and, yeah. And kind of followed your curiosity. Your curiosity was totally leaning that way. Your passion, you were doing it at night studying the placebo effect. So it was like such yeah, a, yeah. I'm just into this. And and that's something I'd love to unpack with you. The, the concept of the placebo effect. The placebo effect is in a randomized trial, you'll give someone water. Just sugar a, pill. A sugar pill. And they'll take it and they'll, they're not sure if it's the real thing or the, the false thing. Isn't that correct? And that ultimately that they get the sugar pill and yet they often create the same symptoms as the pill. Yeah, I mean, because what what happens is something that you believe or something you expect to happen. Let me let me use the example a well studied example of pain. So if someone is given a placebo that they believe is a painkiller, let's say they've got pain in their back, for just as an example, and they're given a placebo, a sugar pill, but they absolutely believe that it's a real drug, then most of the time the pain will diminish or it will go away depending on on the type of pain. Uh, and, and and some people would say, well, that's just all in the mind. But it's much more than that because the belief or the expectation of having a reduction in pain actually now causes the brain to produce its own natural painkillers. See, the brain's like a pharmacy and it has a, a range of different substances and combinations of substances which can deliver a number of different outcomes in the body. So when a person has a belief, then the brain produces what it needs to produce to deliver what the person believes. Well, you know, with within reason, of course, but that's certainly how, how placebo effect works for pain, is the brain produces its own version of morphine. It's because amazing. the brain it's knows so that that's what's needed. Yeah. Like, it's so incredible. Like, I can even remember um, when my wife was giving birth to our daughter, May, our first child, and I remember she was kind of like, oh, I'm like really struggling. She was like, oh, please, I really need these painkillers. I need this. And the, the midwife was really clever. She said, we're just called the doctor. They're just going to get them. They'll be here in a couple of minutes. And even that, she never actually got them, but even that... Like, yeah. which made her feel calm, felt like pain or felt like help was in the way. And I know myself, often I could be in the cafe and it's really, really busy. And I take up my phone to call Dave. Dave, I need you here now. And suddenly it dissipates and he comes in and goes, what the hell was wrong? And it's almost like, like we <laughs> yeah, sense yeah. it. Like there's some sort of intricate, maybe my second example didn't quite align with it, but it's like, I get it. I totally get it. I, I, I'm yeah. such a believer in the power of the mind. Yeah. And, and, you know, I guess even more specific, one of my favourite kind of placebo studies is people were given an injection of chilli powder, you know, or, or, or the extract from it. It's called capsaicin. And it would be injected into the right hand or the left hand. And But but just before the injection, they would be given what they thought 
was a brand new experimental local anaesthetic, but it was really just like, you know, like moisturizing cream with a, a smell <laughs> to make you think that it, like, make it smell medicinal and just moisturizing cream. Uh, and what was amazing, if the, the moisturizing cream stroke local anaesthetic was applied to the left hand uh, and capsaicin or chili oil was injected into the left and the right, then the pain only went away on the left-hand side, but not on the right. <laughs> and when they looked at the brain, it turned out that the brain had produced its own version of morphine, but only in the part of the brain corresponding to the left hand and not the right. So it's not, it's even more, that it's even better than the fact that your brain, you know, produces what it needs to produce to meet your expectation, but it does it specifically where in the brain is necessary to me, exactly what your expectation is, again, within reason. I find that kind of stuff amazing. It's, it's, you know, there's it, a biological basis for it. it. It's like it's it's unlocking more of human potential because, you know, we spend so much time, like capitalism has us running, 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 running. And like what you're describing here is like really unlocking some of the mysteries of human potential because the human body, like obviously, I don't think we'll ever fully understand it, but it seems like its potential is far beyond what we you know you see signs of miracles on a daily basis and even that leads me on to like into like you see it baked into religion the power of belief you know the, these expressions that you, if you've got l enough belief you can move mountains and you mm. can see it time and time again that there is the, the power of belief a child is trapped under a car and suddenly someone just suddenly channels super powered strength and they're able to lift a car or whatnot. Even and the example we were down with a friend Mary Reynolds and she was talking about the, there's a traditional Irish kind of almost like a sorcerer that used to study for 14 years and they could be a shapeshifter and this is like traditional mm. Irish mythology. mythology and the reason why they studied 14 years was because it was only then that they fully 100% believed they could do it wow. and once they 100% believed they could do it but like it was almost like if they believed right now they could save themselves 14 years but it was just yeah. until they fully knew it was possible. We're in alignment. And yeah, that sounds very woo-woo. And that's often the example that as soon as someone makes a discovery, it's almost like someone on the other side of the world makes a similar discovery, that it's almost, there's this link of of intelligence and shared wisdom or knowledge and belief. Yeah, I, it's like, what is it, like the hundredth monkey uh, experiment or the hundredth monkey observation that the, that monkeys would be fed uh, or they would have, was it sweet potatoes were dropped, but they were always dropped in the sand and the monkeys learned to wash the the sweet potatoes in, in, in the sea. And the other monkeys on the island said, must have thought, well, that's a good idea. They started doing it. And, and that was protect, protecting their teeth from being damaged by the sand in the sweet potatoes. But all of a sudden, when they got to a certain number of monkeys, all of the other monkeys in, in different islands in the, the whole of that region of the Pacific, all of a sudden, all of the monkeys in all of the islands that no monkey could could travel to all at the same time just seemed to understand that if I wash my food in the water, then it won't damage my teeth. They're not thinking along human lines, but they all learned it at exactly the same time. It's just a kind of tipping point that you get, isn't it? That all of a sudden there's something in maybe the collective consciousness we sometimes refer to that, you know, an idea becomes big enough and then it just kind of, filters out into everyone else or everything else. That's an amazing one. Amazing one. And even even in the placebo one, I just thought of a great, uh, myself and my daughter are super into Harry Potter 
and in that there there was a, a potion which was like a lucky charm. It was meant to give you un, like massive yeah, mental yeah. luck. And Harry yeah, yeah. pretended to give it to Ron at one stage. Ron was sure he had it, and he played the best game of Quidditch. It's called, you know. But you, you get this, you see this every day with people, like you know, with young kids. You can go, I bought you new shoes. These are the fastest running shoes you're ever gonna run. And like, you know, when someone believes that something, this is enabling something, it's much more likely to happen on you a phone. You jokingly have this magic rock or these rocks that you carry around in your pocket and you go, and just as a laugh, you know, those kind of awkward moments when you meet someone new, it goes, here's my magic rock, pop it in your hand there and make an owl wish. It's going to make it come true. And it's a bit of a, just a, an a, a playful thing or an icebreaker that Dave yeah. just has with people. But there's something also a bit of fun in it too and a bit of like challenging one's belief. Uh, abs- absolutely. But I, I really believe that we are capable of far, far more. And sometimes what limits us, in our, I think, in our lives is just what we're willing to believe or what we already believe, you know, is what kind of holds us back or at least sets a seeming set of limitations upon us. Yeah. Mm. Then how, like, how, how, do, how do we put that into practice? That's like what how, I was going to ask. Like, how is, like, the body has the ability to produce its own morphine when we believe f- fundamentally that we have received an external pill if you will or an external that some other expert has given to us that and our body can like can produce this morphine and it's as you said almost like our inbuilt pharmacy in our head how do we start to channel that or is is it that we have to believe 100% and that's yeah well see I I used to ask myself that question I used to think well how do you just switch on how do you just believe do you read lots and lots of books now it turns out that there's another process in the brain that's very similar to belief, but it's something that you're fully in control of. And it follows some of the same pathways in the brain. And it's visualization. And it's repetitive visualization. I'll give you, let me give you an example. One of my favorite visualization studies, where volunteers were asked to play a sequence of notes on a piano. So just like basic with one finger, you know, plop, 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 up and down a wee scale for a couple of hours a day for five days. You know, not a couple of hours straight, you know, plunk, then take a wee rest, play the notes, take a wee rest. But but for a couple of hours, five days. And they had their brain scanned every day in a region connected to the finger muscles. And what was amazing is that region began to grow like a muscle. And by the by the Friday, by the fifth day, it was significantly larger and more developed than it was on the Monday. Uh, and uh, But while they did that, while they played the notes, a separate group of volunteers sat not in front of a piano, but in front of a table. And they put their hands flat and instead of playing the notes with the fingers, they played the notes in their mind. And they had to do what's called kinesthetic imagery. So you imagine what it would be like if you were moving your fingers. So imagine the, the what that would feel like if you really were going plunk, plunk, plunk with your fingers. So imagine the feeling and sensations of it and hearing the notes. Now, they also did that for a couple of hours in the five days. And the same region of their brain also changed considerably. And if you put the brain scan side by side, you cannot tell the difference in brains and the, the region of the brain between those who played the notes with their fingers and those who played the notes in their mind. So in many ways, the brain doesn't really make a distinction between what you're really doing or whether you're imagining it. Imagining it to, to the brain that real and imaginary very often is exactly the same thing. And the, the, the key is, if you repetitively imagine something, it seems to go via a similar pathway as a placebo effect, but it's not that the brain's doing what it needs to do to deliver what you believe. But now it's the brain is doing what it needs to do to deliver what you're repetitively imagining to be true. But the power of repetitive imagination 
as far as research goes, goes a little bit deeper than than belief because you can specifically imagine a multitude of things. And if you keep working at it, then sometimes you find the brain can go a little bit deeper. The effect can go a little bit deeper than ordinary, uh, or, I say ordinary belief. It's so amazing. that's something you don't have to just switch on belief. You can actually be in control through repetitive visualization. It's amazing. It really, really is. And for, like, okay, so I'm sure people listening, same way me and Steve, and you kind of go, okay, I have a sore, say, say I've got a sore elbow. My elbow's sore. Like, how could I use this visualization to help encourage? Like, obviously, modern medicine is amazing and wonderful. How could I use it in addition or, you know, alongside or exclusively, you know, to help speed up the healing process? Yeah, so the, the key in all versions of visualization like this is to take an internal, what you call a mental representation. So how are you going to represent that pain mentally? So it's called a mental representation. Some people might represent it as, you know, swelling or represent it just as a level of pain. So the idea is to turn a mental representation of what represent of illness into a mental representation of wellness. So if you were re re mentally representing it as swelling, then in, then in your mind you would turn that swelling into no swelling. So maybe picture it like an inflated balloon that you just pull the air out of it and it goes and the swelling goes down to nothing or some other version, maybe putting an imaginary block of ice on it and imagining the swelling go down and change colour. Or if you're imagining it as a level of pain, maybe a dial, you turn the dial down and it doesn't really matter how you do it. As long as you're telling your brain that I'm turning this mental representation of illness into a mental representation of wellness. The dial one was actually used by a hypnotherapist in Dumfriesshire in Scotland a few years back. One of the first experimental uh, demonstrations of using visualisation to control pain so much that after a few months of practice of this, of turning a dial down to zero, some patients in, in dental surgery went through root canal surgery with, with no anaesthetic because they'd learned to turn the dial down in their minds. So that's just one version of visualization. So you take a, a mental representation of illness and turn it into a mental representation of illness. Hands up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally it's right, incredible. Right. It reminds me of yogis. You hear these yogis living in caves. Like there was some guy, Yogi Ra Raman or Yogi Ra some some kind of famous yogi who was able to, you know, control like unbelievable control of his body that he was able to manage different systems in his body. And like, I think it was heat. It was certainly, you know, you hear a monks that can heat up. Yeah. They, you can put them in very cold places in fridges and they can heat the room so much so that they can dry all these wet blankets around them and all these kind of incredible human pursuits of control within one's body and awareness. In terms yeah, yeah. of visualization, David, is it, like say I'm visualizing here, is it just keep repeating the same thing? Like say balloon or like say the swelling, it's swelling and it's unswelling and it's swelling and I'm just keep, Doing it, and it's like, or you know, is it a or, one second cycle? Keep going over and over for five minutes, or how does? Or it, is it that I see a red no, mark that's kind of contracting little by little, or, or how does it all, work? All of those ways. It doesn't actually matter how you do it. And I'm glad you asked the question because ten people with the same condition might visualize in ten different ways, but all of them are correct as long as the end result is it's gone. As long as you get to an end result that says wellness this is how i mentally represent wellness so it could be a one second thing on repeat or it could be just gradually getting it smaller and smaller it depends on you it depends on 
what you prefer to do. Busy people tend to do a one second thing really quickly and just visualize, you know, half a dozen times a day for like a few seconds whenever it comes into their mind. But other people like to sit down and focus on it and they might just gradually see, imagine something getting smaller and smaller and smaller until it goes away. It doesn't really matter. Is look what what's more important is the consistency of it, is the fact that you're doing something consistently. You're and in your mind you're getting to a point that says, well, that that is a mental representation of wellness. Because I remember hearing of you talking about a study where I think it was patients with some form of cancer that when they practice this visualization, almost like a Pac-Man or like um something like that, that it actually had significant improved results while applied as well as kind of, you know, yeah. modern yeah, medicine. So yeah, that, that, that was a study done, done with women who had breast cancer and they were all going through the same treatment so that it was surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy and it was a standard treatment for that particular, uh, that particular cancer. But half of them were educated in how the immune system works you know, and how the immune system tends to tackle cancer. And they were to come up with a little visualisation. So some of them might visualise like a macrophage, for example, you're enveloping and destroying a cancer cell or other people, most of them actually tend to visualize something like a piranha fish or a Pac-Man going and chomping away at the cancer. And again, it doesn't really matter as long as, as long as you have a mental representation of this illness, meaning the, the, the cancer being turned into a mental representation of the cancer isn't there anymore. Uh, and it turned out after you know so many cycles of chemotherapy that the immune it was an immunological study so it wasn't actually the study wasn't about determining the outcome it was all about just seeing what the effect would be on the immune system and it turned out that through the chemotherapy many important immune cells uh, and immune function began to drop in those going through the chemotherapy but hardly dropped at all in those using visualization and the scientists even quoted that even after four cycles of chemotherapy, the immune system is still highly cytotoxic, meaning killing cancer cells, but only in those women who are using visualization in addition to the standard treatment. That's yeah. absolutely amazing. amazing. It's yeah. amazing. Like visualization and manifestation, it almost they almost seem like the same process, but for different things. Like visualization might be if I'm doing a sporting event or if I've got a talk or if I've got an exam or, you know, or if I've heal, trying, I'm encouraging the healing process within my body. And manifestation seems like the same process where you probably take action on it, but it's the same kind of process. You're visualizing the future. We're just using different words to describe the same processes. Is that kind of correct? That, that's how I see the world, actually. This is when you, you start to bring in maybe the, the modern spirituality kind of side of things because I, I often think of visualization inside the body. You, you shift little chemicals and substances around, but the same process it happens in the world. It's almost like the world, in some respects, is an extension of the body. The environment in here and the environment out there are somehow like maybe fractals of each other. They're somehow like connected and, and your own state of consciousness, even though it doesn't seem obvious, because you're not like levitating things with your mind, you know, it doesn't seem obvious, but in some subtle ways, maybe some of the principles by which your state of consciousness shuffles things about in the body also uh, also happen in the world. It just doesn't seem quite as obvious. And maybe this explains why sometimes when we hold an idea in our head, some seemingly miraculous stuff kind of happens or, or follows suit 
And it's not obvious. It's more a more kind of subtle, you know, because things have to happen within the available laws of of life, you know, laws of physics. But I think there's just like the brain does what it needs to do to deliver what you believe is going to happen in terms of the placebo effect. Maybe some aspects of life do what they need to do within capability to meet what you believe is supposed to happen or what you're imagining is supposed to happen. Yeah, it's amazing. Because manifesting people can see as, as, you know, many people who are kind of down the very science route can see manifesting as very woo-woo, very out there, quite kind of, you know, hippie might be another term that people might, you know, tarnish it with. And the whole idea of it is that it's, you're visualizing a life that you'd want to achieve one day and you're hoping to take action. I think that's the key bit that you often talk about is that it's not just, um, you know, visualizing it, sitting there in bed doing nothing. It's like get up and work towards what it is you're, you desire also. Yeah, because yeah, I think sometimes we assume that if I just sit here meditating with a picture in my mind, then all my dreams will do, I'll open my eyes and it'll just land in my hand, you know. And usually it's almost like you have to meet the world halfway. You know, you've got to take the action. You know, I remember coming back to what we talked about at the start, when I started to formulate this uh, this dream in my mind of writing books one day and, 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 and educating about this this sort of stuff, I had to take the action of leaving my job and I had to take the action of writing my first book, which, you know, I, I had taken a part-time job as a chemistry lecturer. So I had to find time within doing that job so that I could also write my book. And I actually ended up writing it in the middle of the night. I wrote the first draft of my first book literally in the middle of the night because I, I started teaching at one o'clock in the afternoon on three days. It was my first class. So I, I started writing about midnight and I wrote till about 3.30 in the morning and then slept till about half past eight. And I did that, you know, four, three, four times a week for about six months. So sometimes you've got to take the action to, as well as, you know, visualize for the things that you want. And I think sometimes almost when you take the action, you're you're stirring the pot a little bit better and giving life more opportunities to help you. Yeah, it's amazing. Like even uh, last week we had a conversation with a lady who was a swimmer and she was a doctor of marine, bi- or she was a surfer and she was doctor of marine biology and, and she talked about in water, like in water, it's very obvious to see the effects that one has because when you go into water, this, you can see water so much more dense. You can see the yeah, effect yeah, that yeah. you have on the environment and sound travels so many millions of miles, you know, it sends so many miles underwater and we forget that humans being in the atmosphere which we live in, it's just less dense, but we're still all connected and we still are all interrelating with one another and the atmosphere in every instance. So uh, yeah. Absolutely. I, I have a picture in my mind a bit like that, that that's similar to the water picture and it's like we're, everything is interconnected and it's like we're all connected like, you know, like roots of a tree, but we're all really connected and, and talking to one another. But, the, the connections aren't physically obvious. They're, they're more kind of subtle. Carl Jung used to talk about the the collective unconsciousness and what he called synchronicities when connect seemingly or connected events or people seem to fall together in time. And it's like maybe someone who's important in your life, who's meant to come into your life because there's a connection between you, but that person, ha- you haven't met that person yet, but there's some sort of connection between you and that connection is like an invisible magnet that's somehow pulling you together through time so that no matter which choices you make, you just feel a, a, a subtle nudge from time to time that just gently, ever so gently, like a, a wind just gently going, 
just gently guiding you through time so that the two events or people just sort of come together in time. And it's like an entanglement of sorts. You know, we're talking about, you know, I actually did a actual quantum entanglement experiment a couple of months ago. I'd love to say, I, I, tell us about this. I, yeah. yeah, I actually I actually did it proper for real. And so I'm, you know, my, my PhD is in chemistry, but I, I, I love to always learn. I'm always learning. And I'm in year, I've just finished year five of a part-time degree in mathematics and physics. Sounds and fascinating. Part, Delicious. Uh, yeah, uh, and this is part of my final year. And so my final year quantum physics, I had to do a project. And part of the project was to prove the reality of quantum entanglement. So I had to use a what's called a quantum computer. And I sent a particle uh, to Manila and another particle to Nairobi in, in, in exactly the same time. And then what we had to do was rotate one of the particles. And there's just little techniques you use. And so I rotated a particle one way. And if entanglement is true, then what you're looking for is the other particle at exactly the same time will also rotate or it will rotate in exactly the opposite direction. And you do this like thousands and thousands of times. And I actually proved the reality of quantum entanglement because after all these trials, when I rotated the particle, no matter what angle I rotated it, whether it was like a quarter turn, for example, or a half turn or a three quarters turn, the other particle always mirrored it and also did quarter turn even though there was no possibility of any connection between these particles and even the, the the time lag was instantaneous, so it was faster than the speed of light. And it was proof that there is some subtle interconnectedness between all things in the universe. In fact, as far as modern cosmology goes, at the beginning of the universe, all particles were connected. So technically speaking, every single particle in the universe right now is connected in some in some way that we would call quantum entanglement. So there is a physical, some physical connection that when you, whenever something happens, like I, I click my fingers right now, and every atom in the universe must somehow be aware of that because the, there's a little thing called an exclu Pauli exclusion principle that means that no two certain types of particles can be in the same quantum state at the same time. So if I flick my fingers right now, it generates heat. It means every other particle in the universe must somehow be aware of the state of these ones right now to make sure that they can't be in the same state. And that's part of what we refer to as some sort of deep interconnectedness of all things. It's incredible. It's a great it's, reminder yeah. that for anyone listening who feels like that their insignificance in their life doesn't make a difference. It's like they cannot not make a difference. Like to, to be alive is to be part of this wonderful tapestry of life and that all your actions create a ripple. And I think that is the perfect segue into you talking about kindness because I think that wow. is such a thing. Even my son today, we were talking about, we, he was kind of, you know, we were just chatting and he was kind of getting a bit angry and I was kind of, we were talking about like, what does the world need more? Kindness. That's what we were talking about. And, and I love your perspective because nowadays, like the most people's stress is so rampant, like in, in everyone's life. It just, you know, in, yeah. the, in the past... 100, 150 years, like the modern human's life is just, there's so many demands and expectations and comparisons and stress is a very common norm. And I love your description of kindness that it's the complete antithesis of stress. Yeah, it's the opposite of stress. In fact, I often ask people in audiences, I say, what is the opposite of stress? And everyone says it's peace or it's calm or it's tranquility. But peace and calm, for example, they're not the opposite of stress. They're the absence of stress. 
physiologically, neurologically, the opposite of stress is kindness, or the opposite of the experience of stress is the experience of kindness. And if you chart the physiological effects of stress and the physiological effects of kindness, you'll find that they're opposite. It's like a seesaw. As you increase the kindness, then the experience of stress goes down. In fact, psychologists once did this study where they pinged, they sent people a text every evening and asked them for two number scores. One was between zero and 10, what's been your average level of stress today? And the other score was roughly speaking to the best of your recall, how many kind things did you say or do today? And when they, they crunched all the data, what they found on days when the kindness number score was high, the stress number score was low. And on days when the stress number score was high, the kindness number score was low. And they were always opposite each other. And it didn't mean that when you're being kind, that stressful things don't happen. Because of course they do. That's life. What it did mean is because kindness is the opposite of stress, physiologically and neurologically, on when you're having an experience of stress, of kindness, it takes the sting out of seemingly stressful events. So the same stuff can happen but it just doesn't feel as heavy or as stressful as it does before because kindness is physiologically opposite. You know, stress increases blood pressure, kindness decreases blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is and so It's, it's, it's so cool. incredible. Like, so stress increases uh, blood pressure. It increases, cortisol. you know, cortisol. It increases kind of, you know, breathing. Anti it increases oxidative stress. Your your heart rate goes up. All sorts of different things happen. And kindness, on the other hand, increases. It slows down your heart rate. It increases oxytocin. It slows down your blood pressure. You know, like it, it is like a tipping scale. Like there is a curly. Absolutely. And it's even an anti-inflammatory and an antioxidant. In fact, kindness, I call oxytocin a kindness hormone. Because as well as being involved in reproduction and breastfeeding, it, it's it's produced through the experience of what the experience of what kindness is like that sort of feeling of warmth and connection that you get from helping someone or witnessing that or being the recipient of it. And so I call it a kindness hormone, just like we call adrenaline and cortisol stress hormones. And amazingly, what some recent research, cardiovascular and immunological research found is when you look at the process or when you simulate, scientists basically took immune cells and cardiovascular cells, put them under stress in the lab. And what they found is something that happens when we're under stress inflammation and oxidative stress you know free radicals then they did the same experiment again but plopped in a few drops of kindness hormones and amazingly the levels of inflammation and oxidative stress came dramatically dramatically down in the presence of kindness hormones so that's another opposite you know where stress increases inflammation and increases oxidative stress then kindness has the opposite effect through reducing inflammation, reducing oxidative stress. So literally almost everything you can think of that stress does, you can guarantee that the experience of kindness does the opposite. So how does so, one apply? So, 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 like, so this like, might correlate, super excited, this might sorry, correlate to say like- Two excited puppies here Say for example, uh, <laughs> like back back 50 years ago in Ireland, the average size family might've been, or maybe it was 80 years ago, the average size family might've been 10 children 30, or something. 50. Or 30, you know, you hear of these massive families and th this wasn't uncommon in, you know, at, at that time across the world really. And I could imagine that like for a parent, that would be unbelievably stressful. But obviously, if the if the the parents had kindness, were kind and whatever, that it kind of helped buffer against this. Yeah, uh, ab uh, absolutely. If I'm talking about the big family, so uh, my I was part of the biggest family in the UK. You <laughs> were. Um, yeah, my, my so my my dad's grandmother 
was Span was a uh, Spanish and grandfather was Irish, the the surname Byrne. And they they lived in a little town called Croy in central Scotland. And they had, I think, fourteen children. And and the average of those fourteen was like six or seven. And it turned out in nineteen seventy-four we were the biggest family in in the UK. And there was a lot of love there. There was a lot of love and a lot of kindness and stuff like that. Now, I, I will remember, I rem remember that photograph. We were in the photograph in the, one of the big national newspapers, and I was in the photograph. I, be, I vaguely remember as a four-year-old being in, in that kind of... And just like, flooded with, with burns. Burns is everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Pretty... anyway, not much, to, not much to do with the conversation about kindness. But no, I just, but amazing. You, you mentioned about the big families in Ireland, and so my, my family came from Ireland on my dad's side. And then in terms of applying kindness as an antidote to as stress, is that having kind thoughts? Is that doing kind actions to others? Is that watching a kind show on TV? Is that like, what, how do, how, where, where do we start? start? Where does how it do we start? start? And, and how then, does, yeah. Because everyone listening has gone, that sounds amazing. Yeah. How do I, is it like, we all know how to be kind, but how to cultivate it as a habit? I think that's As the an antidote to stress, like what an yeah. empowering thing. So all of those things, actually, uh, whatever way you access an experience of kindness, what that feels like. So for a lot of people, you can do, you know, meditations. Like most people are familiar with mindfulness. So I refer to any meditation style that introduces ideas of kindness or compassion or gratitude as kindfulness. So any practice. So the, the, kindfulness. The That's kindfulness. brilliant. So, yeah, so metta, which is a Tibetan Buddhist practice we call loving kindness in the West, uh, where you think of someone in your life and you think, you say things like, may you be happy and well and safe and may you feel at ease. And you say these kind of repetitive, kind things. So you're thinking kind thoughts. I would call that a kindfulness practice. Even thinking of someone you care about and thinking for a few moments of all the reasons why you're grateful for them being in your life. That's also a kindfulness practice. So that, so that produces the opposite of stress. Another thing is just kindness in how you how you treat people, how you communicate with people, and you know trying trying to be supportive rather than judgmental. You know how you think about people, then translate that into the way that you speak to people. Trying to give people lifts, say encouraging things to people, show people that you believe in them, and then it comes you translate that into even the practical. What can I do? Uh, is there people who come into my life who could benefit from something that I could do to help them. You know, I think opportunities present themselves to us individually and uniquely every single day. And just being open to these opportunities as they present themselves, is it possible I could help in some way, even if it's just a supportive word or something small, you know, holding a door for someone, for example, is an act of kindness. So it's how you think, how you speak, and it's also the things that you do. And everything counts. Absolutely, absolutely everything counts. If you think of even the thinking, if you come back to that little analogy I used about entanglement and interconnectedness, let's suppose for a moment that that interconnectedness, that entanglement wasn't just a physical phenomenon, but as a phenomenon that likes all of us somehow through our hearts and minds, through our state of consciousness, then it means that every kind thought you have about someone is like sending that little ripple, like the swimmer analogy you used, and you see the swimmer going like that, and you can see the water being pushed out in front of the fingers as they as they swim. Maybe 
the the fabric of reality, the fabric of this interconnectedness is pushed out a little bit every time you have a kind thought. And it's like you're sitting in water and you have a kind thought and you go, mm, and a sort of ripple goes through the fabric of it's reality. Amazing. And somehow touches the hearts and minds. You can't see it physically. You might not see the fruits of it today, but maybe every single kind thought that you have matters. Just maybe. And they you. matter more than than thoughts of anger or aggression or hurt or negativity. Maybe every kind thought was through, yeah, the, I think, through I think, the... I think the older I get, the more that I realise that how I am, how my own, like how I feel and what kind of energetic mood or frequency, as in that each of us are all energetic beings walking around and sometimes there's stress and frustration and overwhelm and then other times there's peace and gratitude and love and the more that I find that I can cultivate these nice states it's just much more impactful from everything in my life you know it seems like much more good stuff magnifies without me trying to be consciously productive and achieving it just kind of that aspect of just letting go and being learning to be in a nice surrendered state tends to which which is challenging because it, it, it is challenging but we, we recognize the state because we know what it's like we've all had that experience of what it feels like when you've helped someone or even when you you've got to a space in your mind where you're just suddenly thinking of how great someone is in your life and, and it's funny because you get that little thought of how amazing a person is and then you notice through this interconnected that, that sometimes something nice happens for them and you often wonder did my state of consciousness thinking about them somehow go and have an uplifting effect through somehow just impacting them in some way. But at the same time, you feel yourself to have just like slipped into the slipstream of well, of well-being. Every time you think something, kind of do something, it's like you, you move into the slipstream and there's a slipstream of well-being, of, of wellness. It's somehow moving life itself in the direction of something that's better for all of us. Almost like your kind thought is blowing wind into the sail yeah. of another, you know, helping them go yeah, achieve yeah, their dreams yeah. or whatever way. Yeah. It's well, amazing. Well, like I'm adoring this. In terms of someone who is feeling negative and pessimistic and is afraid of, there's this term sometimes bandied around toxic positivity. Like everything is awesome all the time, even when they're not really feeling it. They're putting this brave face or on. Or fake so, it till you make fake it. Fake it till you make it. How does one balance that or find a point where there's a genuineness and where it's like, obviously it's a tough one. If I'm feeling like the way your mother was, postnatal depression, I'm feeling down and the doctor telling them to shake it, like shake, just make yourself feel good. How does one start along the journey where there's a genuineness and a, and a, and a kind of a realness as opposed to a fake it till you make it type strategy? Yeah, and obviously I, that's a, that's a, there's is probably a question, but no one All sorts of grey, there's all sorts of grey we're hanging out in here. Yeah, but, but I, I think sometimes just knowing that the more real and genuine you are, you know from your own experience that the more real and genuine you are, eventually, not always right away, but eventually the better the results seem to be in your life. And I think sometimes we go through little times in our lives when we have to learn that lesson. I, I remember years ago, when I worked in the pharmaceutical industry, in fact, one of the the beginning of the the beginning of my exit was a period of clinical depression, but I didn't tell anyone. 
because I was always the guy all through my PhD. I was known as the the positive guy, the guy that's always got something positive to say, and you know every cloud is a silver lining. I was always there to pick everyone. I was the the positive, always being positive guy. And then I got to this point where I just somehow lost my way, and it got so bad that I used to leave work as early as I was allowed, which was 4 p.m. I used to get in my car, drive home, park my car outside the house, go in the house, lock the door, draw the curtains, lie on the floor and cry. Wow. And I did that. I did that for a few months. And I felt ashamed. I didn't tell anyone. I started to withdraw from my friends because I was at this point where I couldn't. I started to worry that I, my mind was so distracted by my own feelings that I was having that I was struggling to, to hold a conversation. So I started pulling away from friends and not going out because I was scared that I wouldn't be able to hold a conversation because I was struggling to think of things to say. And it was like a little spiral. And, and I was so ashamed I never told anyone. And I was ashamed because I was the positive guy, the guy who was always had the answer for everything. The guy always had something positive to say. How could I admit to people that I was struggling so much? And my mum used to phone me and say, I know that there's something wrong and you're not telling me. And I used to just pretend, oh, mum, everything's going great. No, son, I've just had this feeling. And one night I broke down in tears to my mum on the phone. And she said, right, you're coming home. And I literally got in the car and did what my <laughs> mum told me. I did a car, I, I'm coming there, I'll be there in five minutes, mum. And I literally drove 244 miles from wow. Cheshire in the middle wow. in, in England to, to my mum and dad's home in central Scotland. And I stayed a week with my mum and dad. And the beginning of my recovery, the beginning of it, was opening up and telling someone what was going on and how I was feeling. Amazing. And that was the beginning of the recovery. That someone was my mum and my dad, and I spent the whole week with them. I didn't do any work. I phoned work the next day and explained that I couldn't come in. I was had to go to the doctors, et cetera, et cetera. And, that, and the beginning of my recovery, that took a few months, but the beginning of that recovery was that day I opened up to my mum on the phone, and I had a cry on the phone to my mum, and that was the beginning of what eventually led to a year later me leaving the industry and following my 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 dream, my purpose to write and and speak. But that was the day, the seed of it was that opening up, and and, and it comes back to to partly answering your question. I had to admit to myself that I didn't have all the answers, and I had to admit to other people that I didn't have all the answers. I was bottling everything up on inside, and that was a big lesson for me that. I've learned I've I've learned several lessons since then, of, of course, but that was one very important lesson to me that it's no use pretending all the time. You have this thing called smiling depression, where where you you just smile. I'm okay, and I had something like that. I just smiled to pretend that I was okay, but I wasn't inside. And sometimes in life, we've got to find this balance, and we've got to learn that results are tend to be better in the long term if we are willing to be honest with ourselves. And it doesn't mean sometimes there's a, there's a benefit to fake it till you make it in some contexts, but we've got to learn what those contexts are and also learn what they're not and find that balance. And I think that only comes through experience and also maybe the learning of stories like me. The reason I'm sharing this story right now is because sometimes we, we can learn from other people's experiences by seeing something in them that I recognize in myself. And that sort of gives us that little impetus, that little trigger. You know, maybe the next time something, not the same, but similar in my life comes along, maybe I'll know what to do. 
It's an incredibly powerful story. Beautiful. Like it really is. You're you're so brave to share it. Like it really, really is. Because I'm sure there's many people, myself, everyone can relate to it. Like you're it, putting a smile on a kind of sad feeling and oh no, I'm grand. Whereas ultimately kindness starts with yourself and kindness yeah, yeah. and love is honest. And I yeah. think that's an important... Yeah, yeah. I, like I, I, we're 43 and I, the older I get, the more my own experience is that the more honest and transparent, like I, I fundamentally believe that we're all interconnected as we've been discussing quantum entanglement, as you were saying. And the more honest I am with myself, the more honest I am with others, like because ultimately we are all connected in some form yeah. and there's no point in me lying to myself if I'm, you know, if we're all interconnected because ultimately it just mirrored back to me, you know, falseness or... I absolutely, I, to I totally agree. And it's just, I think it's just learning in life, isn't it? It's just experience. I don't know if there's a single answer that's one size fits all. It's just, we just got to experiment, you know, try. I think, and I think everyone in life is just trying the best they can with the available tools and knowledge and experience that they've had. And, and that's another thing about another way to be kind is to cut people slack because you'd never know uh, what people are, you absolutely never know what people are going through you know but people are always most people most of the time have something that they're dealing with that they just don't tell you about and I think doesn't it doesn't excuse all behavior but it gives you that wee bit more patience and compassion for people which is a little act of kindness that you do in your head that can inform maybe the way that you respond to some of the challenging people and some of the challenging times in our lives mm. yeah it really is I think that's the ultimate kindness is that and it's such a habit and a life's work to be able to cultivate kindness and compassion and empathy and non-reacting to when you're in challenging situations and someone's yeah. pressing all your buttons and you can go well I'm sure you're having a tough day too yeah, you know like, like it really is it's the ultimate self evolution and you know evolution yeah. of one's ego and all of these various things and, and find and finding that sweet spot isn't it it's finding the sweet spot that of, of where is self-kindness for me because sometimes you know I'm saying it's easy enough sort to say sometimes that you know everyone's having a difficult time in some way and I'll cut people a wee bit of slack. And that's easy to do sometimes, but it's much dif more difficult to do other times. And, and it's finding that sweet spot because sometimes other times the act of self-kindness is to remove yourself from the room or from the situation, if that is possible. And, and, that, and so sometimes self-kindness can be fierce because it has to be. And again, it depends on the context of your life. It depends where you are and, and what uniquely is happening in your life at this particular time. But as a little guide, that's where I usually start from, but it doesn't always work. I usually start from, you never know what a person's been through or is going through right now, but sometimes it's too hard. Sometimes it is too difficult and you just have to make different sorts of decisions. Amazing. So it's like, just to summarize where we are right now in terms of the antidote to stress is kindness and kindness you can start from anywhere, whether it be kind thoughts, whether it be kindness towards yourself or kind of gratitude. Gratitude and kindness seem to be intertwined and something yeah, that absolutely. Uh, I, different I, words. For I was even just things. looking on your Instagram there before this, just that you were talking about the importance of gratitude before going to bed and that there's a research showing that even you having when you're lying in bed there just saying a few things that you're grateful for during the day actually benefits your sleep not to mind reduces your stress not to mind helps you in a, put it in a more mm. state of peace and calm 
Yeah, absolutely. Gratitude and kindness, they are so similar because in a sense, gratitude is an act of kindness. You, you're actually being kind to something that is. And you're, you're noticing, you, you're, you're preferentially paying attention to something that, you, that you're grateful for. So out of the backdrop of everything in life, it doesn't mean you're ignoring the seeming negative things in your life, but you're just paying more attention to the things, to some other things. And, and what tends to happen is that feeds back on itself. And the more you cultivate a sense of gratitude, the more calming effect it has on the stress that, that's building up in the average person's nervous system. It's amazing. It really is. It really, it, it really is like, I love the title of your book, Why Woo Woo Works, and Woo Woo meaning alternative approaches towards... Yeah, yeah why, did, why did you pick, like, it, it, it's wonderful because you've kind of, you've taken the the, the, the sword out of anyone's hand. Like, you've, you know, people go, ah, that's really woo You've just called, you've just gone straight out there and taken the, you know, taken the sting out of it straight away. I think it was such a smart way to do it. You know, I, I wish I could take credit for the title, but I can't. <laughs> it, it was actually... Do you know, of all my books I've written, I've always known, while I was writing one, I've always known roughly the direction the next one will go in. And I didn't know what my next book was to be. And I went to Michelle Pelly, the MD of Hay House, and I said, I asked for a meeting with her, and I said, Michelle, you've got your finger on the pulse. You, you know the sort of questions people are asking right now. I want to be of service in some way. So I said, given the questions that you're feeling people are asking a lot, given my skill set, how could I best help? And she said, well, what about why woo-woo works? And we, and, and we laughed that obviously we'll not call the book that, obviously. Uh, and that was the jo joke. Uh, there was no way I was going to write a book with that title. But we sketched out roughly what it would contain, what kind of questions that people were asking that I could address with a balance between science and spirituality or, or science and alternative therapies and find some sort of sweet spot between you know, mainstream and alternative and say, you know, for, for me, the, the conclusion is sometimes more of that and less of this, but other times more of this and less of that. But somewhere in the middle, there's this, somewhere in the middle, there's a balance that I think best serves all of us to find that sweet spot somewhere in the middle, a bit of that, a bit of that, Something's more of one, less than the other kind of thing. But I, I remember saying at the time, there's no way I'm calling it Why Woo Woo Works. But it just the more I kept telling people it's a working title, the more it just sort of seemed like that is actually the book's name. And gradually it just became, by accident, it became the book's name. It's such brilliant. A has it done better than the 11 books? Because it's it such a, like, even I hear that title, it's like, geez, I want to read that book. That's clever. Yeah. It's so brave. Like, it's really... Yeah. It's actually been my best seller so far of, David, of my 11. Congratulations. <laughs> That's yeah. so wonderful. Yeah. So, I, so I, I'm, I'm currently working on a new book on the subject of kindness, uh, and I'm trying to think of an inspiring, equally cool title. Because <laughs> I think that sometimes the title matters as much as the content of the book itself. I think, so in, I, yeah, it really does. Yeah, you look at the... They say in terms of like YouTube videos, it's the thumbnail and the title have the biggest impact. On, yeah, I've know. never really paid that much attention to titles in the past. Not as much as maybe I should have, because I think I've written some good books that maybe had the title been more compelling, maybe they would have reached more people or helped more people, but maybe things come, things come around in their own way at their own time, I suppose. Yeah, Kindfulness yeah. is a great one. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because when you look at your your evolution over the last 11 books, like it really is, there's a common thread through them all. Like there really is in terms of the exploration of kindness, gratitude, all the various these, like which are called alternative, but the softer sides of, you can call them science or medicine or healing or whatnot, but evolving and waking up to in a sense, like there's this common thread throughout them all. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you noticed that because that's exactly how I feel. That has been that that kind of common thread for me is, is heart, is kindness and gratitude and, and compassion. Because I, I think if you really try to explore, you know, what's, what's life about and if you, you know, I, I think you usually get to the point, well, I may as well just be kind. You know, I mean, for me, I, I have my own spiritual view of the world and it, and when I, I start thinking and contemplating it, it always brings me back to, well, I may as well help everyone I can as often as I can in the best way I can, given my, my skill set. You know, and that's sort of how I've, I lead my life and it's how I, it's what informs all of my writing and it's what informs all of my social media content. There's always just that little background of, of just, just trying to help in some way. It's a great, it's a great philosophy. The the one thing which I kind of find I, I sometimes struggle with is, you know, we live in a, a comp competitive society where, you know, there is constant comparison and there is, it's like, I always want to be this open, giving, kind person. And then sometimes I find probably when I'm tired and overwhelmed and I feel pressure and stress, I feel I contract a little bit in this, that sense of, well, I need to like squirrel my, my nuts over here under this tree here. They're my nuts. No, I don't want to share them with anyone else. You know, there's that aspect of kind of me and ego and fear. fear. It's absolutely fear. It's rooted with fear rather than, and the more, the more, the more I find I'm in flow with life, the more open and I'm not holding on to anything. I'm just flowing through and there's just ease and grace and harmony and... It seems so simple when I talk about it. Yeah, no, I, I totally, I, I see, I hear you because I, I'm very similar and I, it, it manifests slightly differently for me. I sometimes, I feel like I'm really in the zone and I push out and I'm doing lots of videos and lots of talking and all that. And then I go through a wee phase where I just, just out of balance and I, I just find myself shrinking away again and my, my social presence reduces People probably don't notice, but I notice even recently I, I've not posted as much because I've just not felt exact, felt the same. And I, you know, I have these little moments when I've always struggled with, you know, little moments of anxiety that sometimes disappear. And I deal with, I understand it better than I did in the past and I deal with it differently, but it affects me in, in ways that I just sort of shrink down a wee bit and then I go out and then I come back a wee bit and then I go out and I, and it's just how inhale, I Inhale, exhale. It's like an yeah, inhale, yeah. exhale. It's, like. it's the ebb and flow. We were talking to, uh, Dave yeah. mentioned um, Eski, Eski Britton, who's a doctor in marine biology and he t- she talks about the importance of the ebb and flow of life, that there's a natural yeah. rhythm of life and when you yeah. ebb, there's equally, you've got to flow. What goes up must yeah. come down. Like there's a natural, Absolutely. it seems like with you. Yeah. You're social and you're out there and then it's like, no, I need to recharge. I need to be introverted. I need to, you know, guard that. And then it's like, I'm ready again. Hello and welcome. That's exactly what it's like for me. And I'll produce a ton of social media videos and then I'll do nothing for like two months. (laughs) Yeah. And then you write a a book and you go out there and do all this stuff and then come back again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's exactly that. It's exactly me. I just, maybe, maybe it is a natural ebb and flow and I should be slightly kinder in myself. That it's your rhythm. And not try to rush the yeah. getting back out there. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it's more coming from a point of genuineness because ultimately yeah. digital content is a representation of the analogue. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think. Wow. 
but yeah, you're that's, a, that's a great insight. I'm, that's good for me to you know, <laughs> to practice to be a bit more aware that that is a natural. Because I know myself. Because I know myself with social media. If it's forced, it's not real. It's not authentic. And if it's yeah. real, it's coming from this point of like, yeah. there's an honesty and it's real, and you're in it. As yeah. opposed to when you're forced. And ultimately, like it may seem like a digital kind of thing. But as you said in your, you know, your quantum entanglement, that each fragment is completely connected and at an energetic frequency, you know, all of life is interconnected. So if you're not feeling in alignment and excited and have something yeah. really good to share, well, that's probably going to be mirrored back to you. Whereas when you feel like exactly. sunshine and lollipops and like, like you are now, you're so lit up, like you're, you're as passionate. I'm like, I'm looking at you, you go, Oh my God, you are like, you're just such a passionate, kind, shiny human. And any listening's gone, I want to be like him. How do I be <laughs> like him? I want to feel as passionate about anything as you do about as you are right now. Like it's, it's really, it's, well, thanks. That, that's lovely to hear, actually. Because, but that, certainly, that's you've really you've really captured what I feel like a lot of the time. Like I don't produce any content if I don't feel in that sort of alignment. If I don't really feel it in my heart, and uh, and sometimes I have been a wee bit feeling like maybe I I need to quickly get into that space. But then I, I like your analogy of the ebb and flow because. A little bit more patience sometimes, and I'll emerge. Like today is part of me emerging. Actually, I was having this chat today. I'm beginning to feel really good. Uh, You're you ready know, for it. In comparison to how I might have felt over the last couple of weeks, where I've not really been producing a lot of context, I've just really not felt as aligned as I had been. So I think I, that kind of natural ebb and flow is actually very, very natural for all of us. And also, I find sometimes if. I was going to share content when I didn't feel like it. The content might be, I don't really feel like doing this right now. And I don't feel like it's coming from a point of not this big, upbeat, high, generous energy. It's more like yeah. I'm vulnerable. And suddenly yeah. that's almost more relatable. Uh, and we, like uh, the, the idea which is coming to my head is there back when we were in our early 20s, we used to hitchhike. And I remember hitchhiking was such a wonderful, um, we used to find it of terms of like your energy because when you were feeling scared and vulnerable, like you just never hitchhiked because you yeah. knew you were going to be prey. You knew yeah. you were much more likely to come across some experience which was not what you were looking for. That we would, we were both very aware that only hitchhike when you felt confident, comfortable and strong yeah. in yourself because the cars that were going to stop were ones that were much more likely to you know, be going your journey and magical things can unfold. So we were hyper aware that what we were putting out into the world was going to be reflected. So that was a really interesting, you know, experience of it. Yeah, I, you know, I, I went through a wee transition, you know, last year. I, I lost my dad last year. He, he had a brain tumour and it was just like right, just right out of the blue, glioblastoma uh, multiforma and just on the, on that, that side. And, and it was just, you know, right out the blue, and we did everything we possibly could. My dad lived a like seven and a half centimeter tumor, but he lived for nearly almost a year. Uh, and I think you, when he passed away, I just shrunk back completely, just shrunk back from everything, and I did absolutely almost nothing for about three months. Uh, and I almost felt like I needed to honor that time, that that rest time. And I and I made a decision that I would never go back to being as busy all the time as I'd been before because I'd always been really busy and I, when my dad was unwell and I, I was taking him to his treatment because I've got three sisters but they work full time and I work from home and it's much easier and I enjoyed having that 
experience where I would drive my, my dad and my mum like 50 miles or 100 mile round trip to get his radiotherapy, for example, or he's to go in for his surgery. And, and I remember thinking at the time that nothing in my life is more important than this. And I remember putting aside everything that was busy in my life because I needed to take my dad to the hospital. And I learned something really important during that time that I'd been so busy for so long, I'd forgotten what it was like to not be always have a ton of things that I had to do. And so when my dad passed away last October, I just decided that I needed to honor that kind of that kind of space, that learning that I'd had uh, of just not falling prey, if you will, to the constant sort of demands and needs of everything around me. And I just literally pulled right the way back for the best part of three months, really, or towards basically the end of 2022. I, I hardly done anything. I did a few things, but really nothing compared to what I'd done before. And I've never really gone back to being quite as busy as that before. I'm, I'm, I get tempted, I get drawn in from time to time, but it, it was part of the commitment that I made to myself of finding a little bit of honouring, I think, the ebb and flow a little bit better than I had in the past and nice. not trying to flow when I really needed to ebb, so to speak. Yeah, more in connection. Beautiful. Jesus, yeah. wow, what a... There's loads of nuggets in that where I go, wow, yeah. okay, yeah, that's... Because yeah. it does take such conscious intention to not be pulled into the absolute going full tilt because modern life nearly demands that we go at full tilt yeah, because, you know, we're sold these illusions of the things that we need to feel complete. Yeah. And then you catch yourself and you go, no, I'm doing this again. I'm caught in this idea that I need to become something or I need to have something or collect yeah. something. And it's usually when you're, you know, when something happens that makes you reflect and go, oh, geez, I did it again. I'm a mm. sucker for it again. How do I just how do you set it up yeah. where you can just take your time and kind of go, well, let's just smell the roses and oh, not what? get too dragged into the weeds of life. I, I sometimes find that life can be finding that balance between, you know, trying to manifest what you want and just being who you are and just being whatever you are in response to life. And I think sometimes there's a wee sweet spot to be found between pushing out and manifesting, so to speak, uh, driving for goals and aspirations and just literally responding the best you can to whatever life presents in front of you. And I find my life has been more of a journey of finding that, that kind of sweet spot. And sometimes when I, I lose my way a wee bit and I'm not really sure what I'm, I need to do or supposed to do, I just come back to this. I'll just try, despite anything, no matter what's going on, I'll just try to be the best person I can be. And that's always my, my barometer. And as, I think as long as, as you're doing that the best you can, even if it's just a, a single thought, I think you'll always go in the right direction, even if you don't think you are. Well, you're as shining a light as we've met. And I love, I love your, um, your honesty of like, there's a theory of manifestation and creating, but then there's also being present to where you're at. And I love your personal honesty and the challenge of it because it really is a yeah. challenge. There's no one perfect answer. No, and, and I think there's times in your life where that is the answer out there, but there's other times in life when this is the answer. I, I sometimes think of it like, and I've used this analogy in the past, it's like you're in a, a little canoe on a big wide river 
and your canoe uh, represents, you know, your mind and your, you know, you manifesting and all the tools you have to create what you want. And you can paddle that way or you can paddle that way or you can do what many of us do and just paddle around a wee circle <laughs> as we go down the river. But what we forget is sometimes the river has a current and sometimes there's a wind blowing and sometimes you're trying to paddle over there, but the current is going that way. And sometimes you smack into a dirty great big rock and you lose your paddle altogether. And so sometimes in life, and I think we, we sometimes think that if I'm not manifesting all the time, then I'm doing it wrong. But maybe people are manifesting all the time. Maybe they're in large parts of their river that are completely calm. But not everyone's river's like that all of the time. And I think sometimes your river is like the rapids. And sometimes you've just got to let go. Throw the, you know, the, the oar all together and just see where you end up. And within that, just try to be the best person you can be and be nice to people along the way the best that you can. And I think you'll probably end up somewhere that maybe you didn't expect, but maybe somewhere quite sweet. As long as you keep that barometer, I'm just going to try to be the best person I can as I navigate these rapids and rocks. And maybe I'll end up at a big camp part of the river again, and there'll be another portion of my life where I might be able to start paddling again and focusing on where I want to go. So I think there's a an interplay between, you know, forces of destiny, you might call them, and being able to, to create what, what you want. And it's not always obvious where you are in your life. Yeah. And that's beautiful. I love that. What a nugget of wisdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it really is that you, it's only through hindsight. Like you can look back and go, oh, that's where I was. And you can articulate it. But in the present moment, it can often be difficult to know whether you're in a in a let go phase or a yeah. paddling around in circle phase or hitting. Well, usually, you know, when you've hit a rock, you know, because you're, <laughs> you're, you're struggling. It, those ones are quite obvious. You don't need yeah. to look back for those but, ones. But uh, thanks so much for the, this, this conversation. This, this, there's so many nuggets. I Like I really, it's it's been so life affirming and you're you're a joy you're an absolute joy to talk to it's been a, an absolute joy speaking to you too as well this has been great i mean I, I just looked at the clock there i cannot believe we've been talking for so long it feels like i don't know what time it feels like it's just been such an enjoyable and it feels like it's getting very real and raw which is beautiful yeah, yeah really nice really really lovely yeah, yeah. really great yeah. So you've well, 11, you've 11 books out, Dave, and your most recent one is Why Woo Woo Works and people can find yeah. it anywhere. Instagram, you've got courses on on your website. You know, you've got personal development, a monthly one and a yearly one. You can check that out where he does cooking demos, you know, cooking demos yeah. of Blue Zone <laughs> recipes. Not necessarily loads of incredible topics. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, thanks very much. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And your content on Instagram is great. Really, really good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm feeling a bit more aligned. I'm, com I'm, I'm beginning to flow again from the ebb. So I'll, I'll probably start producing a lot more videos <laughs> quite <laughs> soon. <laughs> you can feel it in the ether. I can feel it in the ether today anyway. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. And I look forward no, to meeting you. you. If you ever feel like a trip, we're over here in Ireland and you're welcome to come yeah. visit anytime. We'd love where, hanging where out. Are you, where, where are you exactly? Greystone. So it's it's about 30 kilometres south of Dublin by the sea. Oh, and we, great, we have great. a cool little world. We've like got a farm and a cafe and shop and products. Oh, wow. and lots of, oh, lots yeah. of bits of the business and it's really fun. We love it. Yeah, great. I've been to Dublin several times. I've spoken in Dublin about oof, a good half a dozen times, I think. But right. not for a few years, not for a bit. Could be time. Years. Could be time to do another one. We, we're more than happy to host you and feed you yeah. and show you around and hang out. Yeah. Anytime. Can... Yeah. Great. Great. That'd well, awesome. I'll, I'll I'll send on our numbers anyway. Um, Sarah, sure. I think is your email, so I'll send on our numbers. So please, please, I look forward to hanging out and yeah, spending some time. 
Great, fantastic. Thanks. Well, thanks for today. This has been a fab conversation. Great yeah. chat. Great chat. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. Adored it. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Dave. Thanks a million. I look forward to hanging out. Yeah, me too. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Dave. Thanks a million. Yeah. Really appreciate thanks it. Thanks a lot. Right, yeah. Take care then. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. 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 Bye